and welcome to Fragments of Fear, a podcast celebrating the lesser known and underappreciated Jolly. I'm Rachel Nisbet and with me, my co-host, Katie Umstrom. Are you doing well? I'm not too bad, thank you. I'm not too bad at all. How about yourself? Yeah, I'm doing well. Going on holiday soon. We're recording this slightly ahead of time so that that we can uh, deliver it at the end of the month. So hopefully that'll be good. Yeah, that's exciting. So how long are you going away for? Just a week. week. And we're allowed to travel within Sweden, so I'm not breaking any rules. That's good you can get away. So is it somewhere you've been before or just a new new place? No, it's, it's a place that we go back to every summer. It's the island where Ingmar Bergman lived for uh, So quite a special place. Very cool. So, so that'd be nice to get away for a little while. Yeah, and it's very conscientious of you to consider our listeners by making sure that we get this recorded before before time, so you'll be nice yeah. and rejuvenated for our next episode. Yeah, hopefully. How about yourself? Have they eased any um, of the restrictions yet, or uh, yeah. is it about the same since we last spoke? They have been eased slightly, so I can go inside now, and the pub's open the other day, but I'm trying to stay away from the pubs just now, but everyone I know can finally get haircuts, so everyone's finally um, getting haircuts which is nice my, i was doing my husband's hair like during lockdown so i think he was very relieved to finally get to hairdressers and get someone professional to do it <laughs> yeah otherwise i'd have to stay in anyway yeah i think i'll stick to the the writing rather than hairdressing yeah so yeah it's good things are getting back to normal well yeah kind of we'll kind see of. what happens yeah and what else has happened since since we last spoke? We talked about the death of Ennio Morricone on the latest Patreon podcast and picked some of our favourites. But obviously, something we want, we want to bring up here as well, considering how much he meant to to both of us and to the Jallo community in general. Yeah, very sad news to hear of um, Ennio Morricone's passing and obviously quite a shock to us. And like I said in the Patreon episode, you did a really lovely tribute on Twitter and you shared that mix that you made and it was very good. So it's nice, you know, listening to that on the day he passed. And yeah, it's been nice to reflect on his work. And I'm sure a lot of people have been doing the same. And we've both been seeing that on social media, this giant outpouring of love and lots of people sharing, you know, their favourite tracks and things. And it's been nice to see some of our listeners and what they've been saying about him and hearing what they've enjoyed in his career yeah and all the comments feel really heartfelt and sincere i think sometimes on on social media it becomes like a little bit of a competition to to come out with these tweets or posts or whatever it is when somebody passes but it just felt like he meant a lot to a lot of people yeah exactly and then people just were telling all their stories and it felt really genuine and heartfelt and even i didn't even uh, tweet to say anything because i thought that your tribute to him was so brilliant i thought you know i'm just gonna retweet this and hopefully other people see it as well because it was it was really nice so yeah sad news but at least he had some good innings He certainly did. And I mean, he'll be remembered for all these wonderful scores. Just impressive how his work never felt like it became stale or like it was repeating himself and always interested in trying new things. And these like experimental and dissonant scores for Argento and the the beautiful themes and like the eerie lullaby-like themes, like the fifth chord and Who Saw a Die. And uh, yeah, so many great scores. We can just be thankful that we lived at the same time as him and that he's left us with all this music. Absolutely, and we've got a lot of it to go through, so we're not going to be short. Yeah. We're not we're only going to get bored of his scores anytime soon with that back catalogue. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's plenty of stuff that I, be, I haven't even heard yet, so there's still Same. a lot to, to explore. What else? I see that some people have started to receive their Umberto Lenzi Carol Baker box set from Severin. I know, and I've not even had confirmation that the thing shipped, which I'm a bit disappointed about have you had your shipping confirmation no i haven't okay that makes me feel better we're both in the same boat then is it 
Americans or Europeans that you've seen? I think it's only been Americans. Okay, to be I'm going to choose to believe where international shipping is just on the back burner for now. Yeah, international shipping is a bit iffy at the moment, but really pleased that I managed to get a few um, packages that have been out since um, since April come through, and Diabolica started shipping internationally again, and I got that through in about two weeks' time. So finally, things are getting back to normal when it comes to buying discs as well. Yeah, it's always such a worry trying to make sure that it comes on time and in one piece. You never know where things are going to disappear to when shipping's up in the air. Not that I'm accusing anyone of stealing anything. <laughs> Sorry, I just realised no. I used to sound like I'm saying my postman like steals everything. But um, yeah, it's just some packages kind of go missing at the best of time. And my bit's like the Bermuda yeah. Triangle. So yeah, <laughs> hopefully that Lindsay uh, box set gets here. But I'm glad your stuff's arrived. I guess we'll return to the Lindsay Carol Baker box set when we, when we both had a chance to, to have a look at it and enjoy the films. So four but... months time then. <laughs> Yeah, 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 most likely. We can remind people that at our um, So Sweet So Perverse episode is still available. So if you want to give that a, a spin after you've seen the film now in a nice newly restored edition, then that might be interesting for a revisit. Yeah, and it'd be, we'd be interested to hear your thoughts on whether you've changed your opinion on the film based on the new restoration or if it's brought out kind of qualities in the visuals that you didn't appreciate from the, the bootleg or whatever quality was going around online. What else? You've seen any good stuff? The last time I was on this or the time before I was saying I was watching Jackie Chan's Police Story. So I watched Police Story 2 and I've watched like a couple of his other stuff like Rumble in the Bronx. And I, I watched Am um, Noturno again, you know, the, the TV series. Oh, uh, with... Um... With Tony Missante. Yeah. I hadn't seen it in probably 10 years. So I thought I'll revisit that and I really enjoyed it. I think I just heard the theme tune again. I love the theme tune for that. So I was like, I'll just, I'll just watch it. So... I need to revisit that as well. I don't think I've seen it since since the early 2000s or something. Yeah, I think these TV series, sometimes because they're quite long, you know, to sit and watch them all in a week or something, if you're pressed for time. Yeah, it's a bit of a commitment. Yeah, it's easier putting on a film, so it's nice to watch that. And I've got some other kind of TV series I'm trying to get hold of from the 80s and 90s, um, Italian ones, so... That's going to my aim is to get through a couple of those. What about you? What have you been watching? Well, we'll continue with our Zoom screenings and um, watching slashes with a couple of my friends. We watched Madman, which I haven't seen since since the VHS days on a cut Swedish VHS back in the eighties. <laughs> really enjoy that and it was good to see um, Galen Ross from Dawn of the Dead I didn't remember that she was in that one also I managed to get around to checking out um, Walter Hill Streets of Fire a film that I've been wanting to see since it was released in Swedish cinemas but for some reason or another it's just slipped through the cracks the whole time so finally got around to that one really enjoy that that was good. I've never seen it, I have to be honest. So That was a good film. As you mentioned, we talked a little bit about Ennio Morricone in the latest patron pod, uh, where we also discussed uh, McNabb's Dublin sets, Neo Jallo, The Three Sisters. If you're interested in listening to that, you can sign up as one of our patrons. Speaking of patrons, we'd really like to welcome our latest patron, Derek Bourgeois, to the fold. If you want to join the gang of patrons, just head over to Patreon dot com slash fragments pod you can sign up and you get access to all our patron exclusive episodes and before we move on to the film we just want to remind you that we discuss all aspects of the film so there will be spoilers for this episode's film which is this episode's film is the rage within
Rage Within, original title Delito El Cerco del Tennis, aka Crime at the Tennis Club in English, was a 1969 Italian-Yugoslavian co-production directed by Franco Rossetti. The film was loosely based on Alberto Moravia's 1927 short story Crime at the Tennis Club, but the similarities between the texts are slight. Rossetti and his co-writers Ugo Guerra and Francesco Scardamaglia took the rough outline of Moravia's story about Dostoevskyan existentialism amongst the wealthy offspring of Roman elites and transpose it to a contemporary politically charged setting. Now, in order to understand some of the themes and ideas that occur in The Rage Within, it's important to contextualise the film. So in 1968, the year prior to the film's release, protests took place around the world as part of a mass global social uprising, which was a response to a myriad of different issues, such as the Vietnam War, authoritarian governments, capitalism, communism, etc, etc. There wasn't a particular unifying cause that led to these uprisings, but what characterised them in particular was that they involved radical political leftists, the young, the idealistic. They often intersected with the hippie movement and were part of student political movements and the protests were viewed, I suppose, as being emblematic of youthful spirited rebellion. The protests originally took place in Paris, and there's obviously lots of discussion about the protests of 68 and the political landscape of France in relation to the dissection of French cinema of the period. Um, but the protests of 68 made a substantial impact in other cities, Rome being one in particular. And I'm aware of being very simplistic when I'm talking about this, but obviously that intersects with the years of lead and the socio-political climate of Italy in the 60s through to the 70s and beyond. And this political upheaval in Italy was reflected in the cinema of the period. And I suppose we could talk about this across several podcasts, um, but we might get into a wee bit later on in the episode. Um, But yeah, my point being is that these protests had a significant impact on the culture of the time. And we've talked in the past about how many of the directors behind these films were intellectuals, politically charged individuals. So you'll find across cinema of this era, directors making political statements, or at least seeking to address the political climate. And I'd argue that's certainly the case with The Rage Within, which is one of the more politically charged chalets, or at least seeks to incorporate elements of the student uprisings in its narrative. And again, we'll perhaps discuss Rossetti's portrayal of this movement and the characters that feature in his film. And for anyone that wants to watch a thriller that's somewhat similar in terms of being set against the backdrop of the student protests, I'd recommend Maura Severino's 1969 film Dirty Angels. As you mentioned, the film is directed by Franco Rossetti, a name that's far more well-known to lovers of spaghetti westerns than lovers of the Italian thriller. Rossetti was born on October 1st, 1930 in Siena in Tuscany. He studied law before attending the Centro Sperimentale in Rome between 1954 and 1956, graduating the same year as Umberto Lenzi. Rossetti got his start in the industry doing uncredited assistant and second assistant directorial duties for higher profile names, something that was quite common when you got started in the Italian film industry, but he rather quickly switched from assistant directorial duties to screenwriting and contributed uncredited writing for several Pepla. However, he found himself drawn to the versioning Western trend and collaborated with Ferdinando Baldi and Sergio Cobucci writing spaghetti western classic Django, as well as Ringo and his Golden Pistol, Texas Adios, Rita of the West, and Django Prepare a Coffin for the Directors. He makes his own directorial debut in 1967 with El Desperado, The Dirty Outlaws, a western he had written with Hugo Guerra and Elio Scaramaglia. It's an enjoyable western about a criminal who takes over the identity of a Confederate soldier that did decent box office, making 465 million lira. Delito al Circolo del Tennis was his second feature 
It's credited to Rossetti along with Hugo Guerra and Francesco Scaramaldia, as you said. But according to Rossetti, he wrote the majority of it. It's based on a short story from 1927 by Italian novelist Alberto Moravia, whose work has been adapted to films such as Bertolucci's The Conformist and Godard's Il Disperso or Contempt. In the original short story, which I actually read the other day, so never say that we don't do our research properly here at Fragments of Fear, uh, a group of men plan to humiliate a, a female partygoer for their amusement, but they end up assaulting and eventually killing her instead, leaving her dead body and returning to the party. So there's little apart from the tennis club setting and the scheme to trick somebody that remains in the finished film. So Rossetti, Guerra and Scaramaldia basically took the title and the setting of Moravia's piece and created a new plot of their own and used the setting as a backdrop to tell a contemporary story instead about the conflicts between parents and children and the anti-establishment sentiments among the youth during the tumultuous times of the 68 generation, as you said. But we'll return to that. I've written a synopsis for the film. It's quite short because I feel synopsis-wise, there's probably not as much to say here as I would in some of the other episodes we've done. Yeah. Um. So just a quick one. A trio of young, seemingly radical students orchestrate a plan to ensnare a prominent professor in a blackmail scheme as part of their revolutionary politics. But as they set their plan into motion, it becomes clear that the motivations of those involved are far more personal than political. There we go. Yep, that sums it up. So I suppose we should start with the players of the film. So first up, the professor, Ricardo Dossi, who's played by Chris Avram, who was born Christia Avram on August 28, 1931 in Bucharest, Romania. He was the son of an active member in the Romanian Communist Party, which was banned at the time. Avram attended military school prior to being admitted at the Academy of Theatrical Arts and Cinematography, from which he graduated in 1958. He worked as a theatre actor prior to making his film debut in Romania. Romanian film Darsley in 1960. He was 38 at the time when he starred in The Rage Within, his first Italian production, but he would go on to appear in many more. Most recognisable from thrillers such as Bay of Blood, So Sweet So Dead and The Killer Reserved Nine Seats, but he also appeared in several westerns such as Viva Django and Poliziotesky such as Violent Professionals and Il Commissario di Ferro and horror films such as Enter the Devil and Obscene Desire. He died of cancer in, on January 10th, 1989 in Rome, aged just 57. Avram's quite a handsome man with a look that makes him quite well suited to portray a upper middle class character, isn't he? Yeah, I think like when I was writing my notes about this and like you mentioned it there when you talked about the film and the theme of um, you know the differences between the generations, it feels almost like it's slightly insulting to refer to him as you know like this older man because he wasn't really that old all things considered at the time um yeah, yeah and he really fits this role well because he's so debonair and charming and seems quite you know like um athletic and things like that so yeah and yeah he fits the role really well um and he looks slightly different i find here than even some of his slightly later roles you know you mentioned killer reserve nine seats and i feel yeah he cuts quite a different figure here yeah he does but it's still got that sort of debonair air about him definitely yeah so he's yeah. really good at these sorts of roles isn't he yeah and his daughter, Leila Dossi, is played by Angela MacDonald. Now, we've gotten pretty good at digging out information about the actors and productions here, but it's been extremely difficult to find any info on Angela MacDonald. It seems like The Rage Within was her debut, but she's only got four IMD credits to, to her name. The most, I don't know, well-known, I suppose, title probably being Charles Matson's Spermula from 1976. So despite her quite striking appearance and a good performance here her career seems to be quite 
short-lived. Do you have any knowledge of what nationality she is? No. That's what I wondered. Um, you know, from the look of her, I went. The McDonald obviously just sounds quite like like obviously it's a Scottish name, and I thought maybe she's an American or. But I wasn't sure because obviously she'd been in you know French and Italian productions, which muddies the water slightly. I, I've checked all over, but I haven't really been able to find anything which is which is unusual even for slightly less well-known actors. But so if any of you who listen have any information about her, we'd love to hear it from you. Yeah, it'd be really interesting to find out. I, you sometimes find this with films that there's a few kind of prominent characters in them and then they, the actors really don't have much of like written about them or they don't they seem to have disappeared after you know one or two roles i think when we talked about the murder clinic we had a bit of a similar scenario didn't we with very yeah. little information about some of the characters or some of the actors then we have anna gale as benedetta varsi anna gale was born anna abigail giamarthi on the 27th of september 1943 in budapest hungary the giamarthi family relocated to paris during anna's childhood a city that offered plenty of opportunities for Gail once she reached teenagehood. At the age of 15, she began acting and modelling and adopted the stage name Anna Gail. Her first cinematic role was in 1962, in which she appeared in Era Prando Visconti's drama In Storia Milanese. Throughout the 60s, she appeared predominantly in French films and became somewhat known for the erotic nature of her, some of her cinematic turns, such as Therese and Isabel in 1968 and the Swedish film Nana in 1970. Throughout the decade, Gail also appeared in comedies, dramas and action films. In the 1970s, now spending part of her time in the UK, she took on more television work, appearing in episodes of the Roger Moore television series The Persuaders and the British detective series Jason King. She also appeared in one of the theatrical spin-off films for the popular British 1970s police series The Sweeney. Gail divided her time between France and the UK due to her marriage in 1969 to the eccentric Alexander Thin, a member of the British nobility who was styled as the Viscount Weymouth. Gail met Thin in 1959 and became his mistress in the 1960s during her marriage to the French film director, Gilbert Pinel. When Alexander Thin became the seventh Marquess of Bath upon his father's death, Anna Gail was then styled as the Marchioness of Bath. Shortly after their marriage, she gave birth to a daughter, fashion model Lenka Thin, and in 1974 gave birth to a son, Siolin Thin. Gail retired from acting in 1981 and became a war correspondent, reporting from conflicts in South Africa, Vietnam and the Troubles in Northern Ireland. She remained married to the Marquis of Bath, who was known for his eccentric hippie style and fairly sexually liberal views. He became quite a figure in the UK, frequently appearing on the television show Animal Park, which was filmed around his Longleat estate and the safari park within it. His personal life attracted quite a lot of attention due to the many mistresses who lived in residence at his estate. One of his mistresses, who referred to as wife Letts, was Sylvana Henrique, who was a Bond girl in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Gail was said to have tolerated her husband's mistresses and she remained married to him until his death earlier this year after he contracted COVID. I don't think too much is really known about Gail. Uh, she's remained somewhat of an enigmatic figure, um, with British journalist Camilla Long referring to her as a mystery. Um, there was a bit of a stushy in the press in 2015 due to comments she allegedly made about the Thin family's bloodline being affected in reference to her son's upcoming marriage to Emma McQuiston, a woman of Nigerian heritage, and Gail was subsequently banned from the wedding by her son. So that's really coloured a lot of people's view of her in this country, and that's kind of what I think a lot of people know her for rather than her acting career, to be honest. And as far as I'm aware, she's still lives in Paris and um, she's lived there all the way through her marriage as far as I can tell just coming to the UK I'm occasionally so there you go interesting what a what a life story yeah it's just, I thought it's a bit longer than what I usually say about someone but yeah she has got quite an interesting life just from the fact she married into British nobility and as I said her husband was quite a character in the UK um, yeah. which is interesting it's just it's a shame like when you hear kind of some of her recent comments yeah sort of darkens the the memory oh she's still alive now but yeah yeah it's quite interesting 
interesting because she's had this interest she's had this life which sounds quite colorful and she worked as a war correspondent and I'd love to hear more about that I couldn't really find anything about like what kind of war correspondent she was or who she worked for yeah. I think she is quite a private person so there we go and I love the fact that you managed to find a bond connection as well <laughs> that's a try. I was gonna, it's the usual thing of if there's any way to mention Roger Moore mention Roger Moore if there's any way to mention a James Bond mention James Bond <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, so it was both persuaders and a bond connection. Doing quite well. Yeah, just need to yeah, keep finding them. Well. Maybe yeah. you never know. Maybe Anna McDonald has some sort of connection to to Bond or Most Roger Moore, a persuader or something. <laughs> And finally, we have Roberto Bissacco as Sandro. Roberto Bissacco was born on the 1st of March, 1939 in Turin, Italy. As a teenager, Bissacco had an interest in theatre, but ultimately decided to go to university to study economics. Upon graduating, he took a job at an accountancy firm where he worked for a year or so before deciding that he really wanted to pursue a career in acting. He enrolled at the Academy Nazionale di Arte Dramatica Silvio D'Amico in 1960 and made his cinematic debut in 1963, starring in Enzo Battaglia's drama The Archangels. His breakout role came the following year in 1964 when he was cast in the Rai television series E Miserabili. Bissacco continued to work throughout the 1960s, appearing most notably in Franco Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet as Lord Paris, as well as appearance in Radley Metzger's Camille 2000 in 1969, Joseph Lowe's spy spoof Modesty Blaze in 1966 alongside Monica Vitti, and comedy crime caper Kiss Me Quick I'm Cold, another Monica Vitti vehicle, in 1967. In the 60s and 1970s, Bissacco was cast in several Italian thrillers such as Tinto Brass's Modest Shallow, Deadly Sweet, aka I Am What I Am in 1967, Moro Severino's Dirty Angels in 1969, which, like The Rage Within, features a backdrop of student protests, in Detective in 1969, and most notably for Giallo fans, Sergio Martino's Torso in 1973. As the 1970s progressed, Bissacco primarily worked in television productions, often historical in nature. In the 1980s and 1990s, he appeared in a couple of popular Italian television series, such as the long running Italian soap Imposto al Sol and the Rayuno series Incantissimo. Throughout the latter decades of the 20th century, Bissacco continued to take roles in the theatre, and since the 2000s has primarily worked in theatrical productions, preferring the stage to the silver screen. I can't get over how much he looks like a young Martin Landau. Do you think? Yeah. I mean, I'm going to have to like compare now. Just a wee bit, actually. Yeah, you're right. That's all I could think of when I was sitting there watching it. <laughs> That's cool. I didn't even make that connection, so it's, it's an interesting one. He's one of those, well, again, one of those figures, isn't he, that, you know, never really was a starring, no, never, but he typically didn't take the starring roles in films. They yeah. have worked steadily and turned in competent, you know, good performances. You read so much about actors and their career on stage, and sometimes I find it quite difficult to, you know, find specifics about that. Yeah, it's not easy when it comes to stage work, really, to to know what they've done or to get a sense of how, how successful or whatever. It's easier with film. Yeah, because with stage, you don't really know necessarily, like, who are the best kind of contemporary directors and you know what's considered always to be a good role yeah. or yeah like what involves so yeah you can't really go back and assess somebody's work in the way that you can with film yeah absolutely so, for obvious reasons not as much written about that either right before we get any further i can imagine some people then listening to this and thinking is this really a jallo like on first viewing i i can see some people might dismiss this as a non-jallo but again if you look at the film in the context of the 1960s jally these films were often centered around plots borrowed from from lydia balik as we mentioned several times before and somebody is a victim of a plot so either to drive them insane or to kill them and or destroy them and much less on murder set pieces so within that context it fits really well into the 
favorite genre from that perspective even though it takes aboard other aspects that is perhaps more important here but i would definitely call this a giallo how do you feel about it no i'm in complete agreement and i'm glad you raised this point actually because when we kind of discuss films like this we do get into murkier waters because what people kind of typically define as a shadow becomes you know it's it's kind of is quite far removed from that for some people and then as you said you can understandably see why people are reluctant to call it such but yeah like you say in in the context of the the 1960s thrillers it fits well it involves you know those elements like scheming and blackmail and it still has mystery aspects um obviously it's less horror orientated and i wonder if that's maybe some people's sticking point about the classification of a shallow i know we often talk about oh people don't think something's a shallow because of the tropes but i also think a film like this it's not scary it's not it's not particularly tense and it doesn't have a lot of set pieces. No. I'm guessing that's, yeah, why people are reluctant to dub it as such. But, I mean, if we're talking about these films in the, the kind of broad sense that we often do... I mean, it still is an Italian thriller. I completely agree. It's not the most obvious example of the genre, and it's not a film that I would recommend to anybody who's just getting started and have just seen Argento and is looking to go further afield. But And that's why I think you and I return so often to discussing the 60s giallo and how important they are for people to sort of understand that context and not dismiss them as non-giallo because they haven't got black gloves or straight races and set pieces in the way that the 70s Jolly do. Yeah, exactly. And I think there are some films that a lot of people would class as Shally that maybe someone in Italy or we wouldn't as such, um, because maybe they do lack some of those elements that we actually think are more lend themselves more to the genre. If you read Italian books on Shally um, and Italian horror in general, it's interesting to see where the distinctions are made and some fo- films fall either side of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, and like I said, you'll find a lot of the films that people consider to be Shally actually get considered to be horror. We won't go down some of those routes. <laughs> we'll think yeah. of one film in particular. Um, but yeah, it's, it's like you say, um, it might not have those trope-heavy elements that people associate with the genre, but actually you can see the beginnings of certain um, giallo tropes here, and there's, which we'll get into later, is the psychoanalytical aspect of the film. Some of the, you know, blackmailing extortion ideas are still very much prevalent in the later period. Giallo just dialed up to 11, um, yeah. a lot more of our... So yeah, quite... I don't want to use the word pedestrian, because pedestrian sounds quite critical, and it's not like it's trying to be like one of those films anyway. It's not... It's like it, it was trying to aim for something bigger and failed I wouldn't say it's just more more a case of um it just probably seems a bit tamer compared to later period shall we but again yeah because it's a different time because I think as well the effect of blood and black lace isn't so prominent at this point I think sometimes people think 1964 bang blood and black lace and then loads of films of that ilk came out after but that's not really what happened is it The, the importance of blood and black lace has increased later on I mean, you see it as a precursor to to Argento's films, but it wasn't a, an influential film in that respect in the 1960s. You didn't see a strand of blood and black lace inspired thrillers coming out in the in the years after its release. Yeah, more of an exception, isn't it? Until yeah, Argento yeah. really took that and ran with it. Yeah. Um, so he was way ahead of his time, Barber, and people didn't really catch up with that until later on. Right. So with that out of the way, shall we get stuck in with um, the rage within? Yes, um, I'm just trying to think where to begin with this, um, because we didn't really talk too much about the plot 
in the synopsis that I gave. So the cast of The Rage Within is fairly small. I mean, typically when we talk about the players in a film, we concentrate on um, the main cast. But here, the actors that we mentioned, they really are the only main actors in the film. And there's not really that many secondary characters here. Uh, Just a few who have just small parts to play. The main cast, as we said, is we've got Ricardo Dossi, who is this eminent professor. Um, He works at the university, seemingly, I think, in economics or something to do with financial matters. And he is often on advisory boards um, for the government and consulting in that sort of way so a big deal um, in his profession and he's obviously well healed um, yeah very well to do makes a lot of money um, it doesn't seem to have much in the way of dependence, but we do later learn learn that he has a daughter, um, as you said, Leela Dossi. Despite being the supposedly respectable man, uh, Ricardo is having, I don't, I don't know if it'd be fair to call it an affair, but uh, maybe a, an inappropriate relationship with a younger woman, Benedetta yeah. and Varsi. And Benedetta is the daughter of another professor at the university who's a good friend of Ricardo's. And we learn that Benedetta is in fact someone that he's known throughout his life so that kind of adds a slightly um, unsavory element that she knew him as a child and now they're having this sexual relationship and if this relationship was to come out it would probably do a lot of damage to Ricardo's career it would destroy his uh, friendship um, with Benedetta's father and you know throw him into disrepute but of course you know being a man in the 1960s, he can't help himself and continues uh, these liaisons. So Ricardo's estranged daughter, Lila, um, knows about this affair because she, in, in fact, is the one who's orchestrating it with her boyfriend, Sandro. So Benedetta, Sandro and Lila have this plan to extort and blackmail Ricardo through this relationship and to bring about his downfall and Sandro works at the tennis club that Ricardo frequents and that gives him an end to put this letter of blackmail um, in his pocket and to enact this grand scheme they have where they seek to manipulate him and, as I said, bring about his downfall. And basically the film kind of hinges on this all these elements of scheming and blackmail and trying to figure out people's motivations. Fairly simplistic, I suppose, when you put it like that, when you talk about the characters' interactions and, yeah, the fact that it's a simple blackmailing plot, but things aren't quite what they seem. And I think that's the beauty of this film is things slowly start to unravel and we learn different bits and pieces of the puzzle and try and assess what's going to happen and what what the characters um, want to get out of the whole scenario and who's playing off against who. We don't really know if Ricardo's the innocent victim or not in the whole thing. Yeah, that's an excellent summation of of the plot and how it unfolds, I think. I think the the obvious place to start here is at least the, the motivation as we hear about it in the beginning is the politics. So do you want to get into that side of it first? Yeah, I'll try and get into the political aspects and we'll have a wee discussion about that because I think there's, this is probably, for me, this is quite an important aspect of the film. And I think that's what maybe, you know, when you when you say what it's about, it sounds quite simplistic. But when you take in this political angle, it kind of changes um, how we view it. As I mentioned earlier, when discussing the film's background, um, there's a political strand to proceedings. Initially, the film seems like it's going to be far more political than it actually is. Uh, we've got this character of Leela who positions herself as a revolutionary. She's obviously actively engaged in student politics. Um, Sandro, perhaps to a lesser extent, and Benedetta is part of their faction as well, but doesn't seem particularly interest- interested, I think it'd be fair to say. But Leela is very strident about her politics. As I said, she positions herself as a revolutionary and she talks about dismantling political power structures and she's very much you know wanting to restructure society and bring about this more fair and equal society and by taking power from others 
Um, so yeah, she talks about dismantling the systems of power via other means. And she reflects on kind of what's been going on in the world with the student protests. And as we all know, with protests, you know, people march, they do sit-ins, they get carted away from by the police. And she says that this is completely the wrong approach and that in order to dismantle the systems of power, they have to do things that don't put their comrades at risk. And as I said, those um, means of protest are likely to end up in the incarceration of others, which means they can't fight the system. So Lila proposes that instead they infiltrate the system in other ways. She talks about the men in power and says they don't represent the system, they are the system. So by destroying them, her and her comrades destroy the system. So this is her aim. And she wants to do it, as I said, by unconventional means. So she sets her sights on Ricardo, who's head of this advisory, well, he's he's a consultant, I think, for this governmental body and a prominent um, professor at the university. Lila's plan is to to use her fellow comrade Benedetta, the daughter of Richard's friend, as a honey trap of sorts and blackmail Ricardo and destroy him by manipulating his private life and exposing his degeneracy. Um, And in this scenario, sex is weaponized and Benedetta's sexuality represents power and a tool to bring down the system. So yeah, by bringing down Ricardo in the scenario, they can set a template for this kind of I suppose they refer to it later in the film as almost like dirty tactic in order to bring down others. So I suppose playing not by the rule book, not doing it by kind of established political means of pressure, you know, like marches and sit-ins. Instead, they're going to do it by trying to smear um, the people in power. And Lila talks about King Umberto I, um, a prominent uh, figure in Italian history. It makes this analogy about his time and their time and how they are like the anarchists who tried to overthrow him and they will bring down the supposedly good man in Ricardo um, because those in positions of power are often the people that are hardest to unmask. So if you look at Italian cinema during this period, you'll find a fair number of films that ruminate on the politics of the era and feature characters that one could describe as revolutionaries. And one that always springs to mind for me is the 1971 Elio Petri political drama The Working Class Goes to Heaven. Uh, it's a very political film, as you'd expect with Petri's work. But what's rather interesting about it is this examination of the way in which these left-wing intellectuals and students become entrenched in what's going on in the factories uh, with the working classes and unions. And there's a critique in that film about these groups and their aims and how they work in practice and the true at the heart of the rage within are very much part of that intellectual class they're not workers you look at Benedetta's lifestyle and it's very much the same as the lifestyles of the bourgeoisie jet setters that typify the jalo uh, she certainly doesn't come across as a revolutionary and although Lila purports to be one she's able to talk the talk but later on in the film it's revealed that her plan to bring about Ricardo's downfall isn't political at all but personal so she uses politics as a smokescreen to try and intellectualize what she's doing uh, which is very much the result of her emotional state rather than her ideologies. And I think it's fair to say that with The Rage Within, Rossetti explores the superficiality that exists within the character's politics. There's a sense that their politics are something they engage in as a source of fun. Um, they're playing at being revolutionaries. And that's what perhaps make that's what perhaps makes Lila's actions um, worse. She pretends that she cares about dismantling these structures, but in reality seems more concerned with her own self-interest under the guise of political change. And I don't think Rossetti is seeking to expose the student movement for being self-serving or superficial but he does expose some of the hypocrisies that exist within these characters yeah and I said Lila's the one that's positioned as this you know really political revolutionary style character um, but Benedetta less so doesn't seem bothered and um, seems to tire of it pretty quickly um, Sandro who works at the tennis club seemingly has a father who had difficulties um, so he's probably more in tune with his beliefs but he's seduced by Ricardo's generosity and loses sights of their plans so for these characters that supposedly have these you know really important 
important ideologies, they seem to bend to them quite quickly and seem to get bogged down by personal matters and lose sight of their cause. So I think, yeah, the politics in the film are interesting because their position is important, but they're not as important as they initially appear to be. For all the talk of ideology and revolution and overthrowing the powers that be, it turns out to be completely different reasons. I'm not sure if this might be an instance of me reaching a little bit, but I feel like there's some influences from Michelangelo Antonioni on display here in in terms of themes as well. I mean, Antonioni is perhaps not the filmmaker that you bring up, although often when you discuss genre film, blow up obviously in the influence on Argento, both in, in trying to find a detail and solve the mystery, but also in films costing of David Hemmings, which led to him being um, cast as, as Marcus in Profondo Rosso. Antonioni often returned to themes like the ennui or the, the malaise or the bourgeois and and his characters are lonely and bored and sort of lacking real connection and the sex doesn't really matter and it's performed without much conviction. And I, I just feel like there are quite a few similarities there. There's some similarities and themes between between the filmmakers and Antonioni appreciated Moravia. Uh, on whose short story this film was made. So um, I might be, as I said, reaching... Yeah, I think that's a good observation. I don't think it's reaching at all. I think you can definitely see themes that cross over and I think it would be hard to deny that someone like Rossetti wouldn't have encountered his work and been perhaps influenced in some way. Obviously, there are themes that are prevalent in cinema of this period, but I think, yeah, I say it, a lot of filmmakers were influenced by his work. Yeah, if you look at it from a genre film perspective as well, doing a film covering the sort of the clash between the generations if you look at it from a commercial point of view you can use the film for the upper middle class parents it'll almost become like a horror film as what what does this mean for me what's happening with our children are they going to go through with a revolution and you can see that later on in the 80s with the youth gang films uh, or the Poliziotesque era and also of course for the younger people the counterculture movement and clamoring for a revolution and the destruction of powers that be that would appeal to them as well so kind of it kind of makes sense from that commercial point of view as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. It does kind of bridge that gap between the two different generations. And because it's slightly ambiguous in ways, it doesn't exactly say what to think. I think, you know, there's different ways of reading this film um, and different ways of reading certain characters. So I think, you know, depending on people's own um, perspectives and ideologies, they might attribute certain characteristics or have certain um, feelings about some of the characters here, depending on who they relate to. Yeah. But yeah, like you say, it's that that generational divide that was very much um, prominent in the 1960s. I think they say, you know, the gap between the, the generation before the generation that came of age in the 60s is one of the largest that we've seen in history. Isn't it just a complete kind of disconnect? I mean, there's nothing really, yep. ever, there's not really anything like the 1960s in terms of the just massive radical social change of the period. You can tell here with uh, Ricardo and and Lila, as you mentioned, she's estranged. And when Ricardo is supposed to meet up with Benedetta, he Ricardo comes off as this confident and self-assured and in-control professional who navigates like the negotiations with ease in his professional roles. But in his personal life, he seems a bit more lost and not in control. And he's more at, at the mercy of Benedetta's whims and as she sends him off to this busy bar where he meets up with Lila instead uh, and it's an establishment that's definitely not his scene and it just sort of underlines how different their worlds are how different his world is to that of, of his child and, and her friends. Yeah, it further serves to highlight that disconnect. And I think we do see Ricardo moving between those worlds uh, when he's in Benedetta's flat and when he's, you know, in his professional setting. He seemingly 
wants to be part of that world in some ways. He doesn't seem like we're talking about the generational divide, but I don't think Ricardo does come across as, you know, the conventional member of his generation. I think there's this clambering to regain his youth. Because there's that interesting exchange at Ricardo's country home um, where the old rambler sees him watching Sandra and Leela as they frolic. And he asks if Richard's jealous before remarking on how wonderful it is to watch beautiful young people. And we detect this certain sense of jealousy um, there. Obviously, there's another thing that we can get into in regards to that why he might be feeling jealous or feeling conflicted during that moment but there's a certain sense that he's missing out on this revolution that's going on himself yeah it's said you can watch plenty of documentaries from the period and people do talk about this thing where it's almost like the silent generation isn't it where they feel that this radical these radical changes took place that they weren't part of and like you say like trying to then they feel that their own children are probably going to overthrow them and change their way of life and a lot of uncertainty about the way that the future will be. So 60s was a wonderful, vibrant time if you were young, but I think less so um, if you were middle-aged. That sense of frustration is palpable in this film. It's this idea of that, you know, the political system isn't working for the young and it's this desperation to try and overthrow it because it's their futures. Like you say, you know, elderly people, you might have more dated views. Um, We're trying to hold on to something that, yeah, doesn't, really serve a purpose for them for much longer and yeah we're seeing that all across the world at the minute with the kind of social upheaval that's happening not on the same scale maybe not maybe not fair to say not on the same scale but just a, a different type of social change but I think young people now are really becoming maybe more radicalized politically than they than they have been for a long time and and I think you know watching this film again um when I watched it a couple weeks ago and it's been quite a few years since I last saw it you can certainly see these comparisons to kind of contemporary politics with the trio of revolutionaries I think there's a lot of discussion about and this isn't me criticizing I'm not taking a stance here or anything I'm just saying that there is sometimes a fair bit of criticism about people masquerading as you know like working class revolutionaries when they're in fact you know part of the the systems that they they want to overthrow yeah posing as something that you're not yeah it's it's not to say and I'm sure I've written this in my notes for something later it's it's not to say that you can be part of those classes and want to overthrow the system and and that change for everyone even if it's to the detriment of your family or you on a personal level but I think when we're talking about the rage within and the way, way that the characters are it just doesn't come across sometimes as genuine like you feel that it is a bit like playing at politics and they've been swept yeah. away by this movement. And, you know, I'm sure older people at the time were a bit critical and thought, well, you just wait and see when you're you're my age and if you have those same views. Yeah. Timeless themes really politically, even if the politic like the political parties change and things are a bit different. I think we can all relate to some of the figures that are presented here. Certainly. Shall we talk a little bit about um, Ricardo and Lilla? Yes. Because there's there's quite a lot to to talk about here regarding the the father-daughter relationship because it turns out that um, Lilla's motives are much more personal as you mentioned than they first appear to be and I think you mentioned Electra Complex in our very first episode when we talked about Mimsy Farmer and her father in in autopsy in that film we agreed that it was probably due to to abuse from the father and that seemed to be the root of Mimsy's mental state and I'm, I'm not sure how you read it here but to me it doesn't really seem like Lilla's emotions towards her father is a consequence of of a abuse from her father more about her own conflicting emotions and and desires really so perhaps in that aspect a more clean cut electro complex than in autopsy how how do you feel about it i don't think it's abuse i certainly don't think it's abuse but i think maybe more like emotional neglect she's never had the chance to form that bond with her father in her youth so she's 
I, I mean, I guess you just have to try and make your own assumptions, but I, I get the impression from the film that she, she rarely sees her father. So she's kind of, I suppose, developed these unhealthy feelings for her father or sees him in a way that's not a typical father-daughter relationship. I mean, when we have that interaction between them in the bar where we learn about the nature of their relationship as in the fact that they're father-daughter, Bela yeah. addresses him as Ricardo and asks some really uncomfortable questions about whether he would sleep with her if she wasn't his daughter. Just questions, you know, that nobody, nobody would ask their father and there's almost a kind of sexual like lusting after her father and she seems very very jealous of him like in autopsy the mother is obviously dead and it appears like she's been um, dead for quite some time Lilith's left the house Ricardo at least says that he wants her to return but there's this underlying conflict perhaps it's due to Lilith's conflicting emotions about her father and him sort of sensing it or not I'm not sure I mean there's an exchange where they say Lilith says we never talk and Ricardo replies I've already said a lot and you know what the results were and she says I'm your big mistake I know you've said it more than once and to mum you could argue with her about it when she was alive and that's more or less sort of all we get about their prior relationship we we know that they're in more or less estranged now but I don't know I, I find it difficult to sort of to figure it out it's not obvious what's exactly happened we can infer certain things from you know, like that the dialogue that you quoted from the film but um the details are a little bit hazy but i suppose all we can deduce from what's going on is that Leela doesn't have particularly healthy feelings towards her father. I think we can we can certainly uh, agree on that. Yeah. They're apparent from very early on in the film because in the very first scene Leela sends Benedetta off to her father and Sandro asks her jealous so it seems like even Sandra is aware of Lila's feelings towards her father. Yeah. And I think, you know, initially Lila seems jealous of Benedetta. And before we learn about Lila's relationship with her father and that Ricardo is her father, I suppose before we learn that, we attribute that jealousy to the usual jealousies that we see between women. And we've got this vivacious character of Benedetta who can bed any man that she wants, probably. And she's blonde and glamorous and rides a motorcycle or a Vespa, whatever it is. Um, whereas Lila's more of an intellectual. And we see this jealousy exhibited by Lila towards Benedetta and feel like maybe she wants to be her and that's shown visually through that shot on the trio's base where Lila stands in front of the photo of Benedetta and their images line up yeah, um, great shot yeah very good um <laughs> And later when we learn of Lila's parentage and witness her odd conversation with Ricardo in the bar, um, the relationship between the two takes on a new meaning and we realise that Lila is jealous of Benedetta as her father's sexual partner in a way. So yeah, there's this complex exhibited by Lila towards her father, which brings a rather unsavoury element to the film. And like, it's not directly said, but I think like you say, she's obviously jealous and I think it goes beyond just being jealous that she's spending time with her father. There seems to be that jealousy of their sexual relationship in a way. Yeah, I think so as well. I mean, there are quite a few instances where it feels like it's obviously more than just jealousy of Benedetta spending time with him. I mean, I don't know how you felt about it, but when she, when Lilla's coming up to the bar to meet her father instead of Benedetta, and as she enters, before he notices her, she looks at him, and I'm not sure if I'm reading too much into it, but it feels like she's almost sort of sexually excited by seeing him, if it's just by seeing him or seeing him there alone and slightly lost and uncomfortable in that sort of alien context, but... Yeah, she, yeah, I read that part the same way and she does seem like to get off on it a bit. Yeah, and I think it's interesting when we have that conversation with Benedetta and Ricardo in her flat where she talks about how she knew him as a child and tells the story of how she hurt herself and he lifted her up and I think she kissed him on the neck as a yeah. thank you I think that's 
how they say it in the film, I might be wrong. And there's something, yeah, there's something quite unsavory about that. The fact he knew her as a child and now as a sexually mature woman, he's now sleeping with her and it's his friend. And I think that probably causes more confusion for Lila. I mean, like I said, he knew Benedetta as a, chi- as a child. So there's this almost like he's a bit like a, an uncle or something. It seems strange to me to have a sexual relationship with someone you knew as a child. So again, that muddies the waters um, slightly. I think just the way he sees these young women. Uh, yeah, I, I made the same observation. It, it certainly feels incestuous that he knew her since she was little and she's the daughter of, of his friend who's, who's even asked him to look after her and and she's best friends with her daughter so if you're sort of questioning are there are there any feelings from ricardo for lilla then is benedetta sort of a substitute for lilla because ricardo doesn't want to consummate this relationship with his daughter It's almost like jealous rage and the title of the film is The Rage Within. There's a lot of envy and jealousy and rage towards people and wanting to to destroy people that hurt you or that you can't have, you can't possess. And there's something strange about the way that these characters purport to have these progressive politics, very idealistic, um, about sharing and equality, yet they kind of backstab each other and exhibit all these sorts of jealousies and frustrations. And yeah, their personal lives don't seem very reflective of this harmonious approach they have to dismantling well not the dismantling the, the status quo would be harmonious but I think they purport to want to live in this harmonious way when in actual fact you don't really believe that for a second when there's a lot of yeah no. personal motivations getting in the way like I went mentioned when I talked about Antonioni it feels like they're lacking any real connection I mean it doesn't feel like any of the relationships here are particularly sincere Ricardo proclaims that he loves Benedetta but it feels like it's more of a perhaps the the age-old thing of, of an older male meeting up with a younger woman to make him feel sort of revitalized and a bit younger again but it doesn't feel like it's all that much about Benedetta than it's the person that he loves it feels more like what she represents the youth and the beauty and and that sort of thing yeah and that's fair to say in the way that the characters flip between one another we're not really sure if ricardo is solely interested in benedetta or there's something underlying there in regards to his daughter sandro seems to you know completely turn away from from lila and goes towards benedetta instead and we don't really have much evidence as to why and benedetta just switch i mean through most of the film it seems like benedetta's developing genuine feelings towards ricardo and just changes completely and goes towards Sandra. It's a very hollow existence. And like you say, it just kind of represents that ennui, doesn't it? And boredom. It's almost like they do it because they can. Much like in Plot of Fear, when we discussed um, Eli Wallach's character, who is sort of amusing himself with these games. And it almost feels like it's that here as well. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And we have this moment in the one of the outhouse buildings with Benedetta and the butterfly trapped in the in the building and she wants to set it free and it's this idea of this beautiful thing being trapped and it can't get out. And I think that's Benedetta's character, isn't it? She's in this gilded cage, gilded pop culture cage. Um <laughs> and they I think Sandro as well talks about how he's, you know, a prisoner or a prison guard. They feel constricted by their lives. And maybe that's why they want this political and social upheaval, so they can feel like life is some Something more than what is um, but at the same time that life seems to benefit them in other ways I think it's just that classic thing of when you're young you don't know what you want and you're trying to rally against things and you're trying to make sense of the world and for the wonderful life that you assume that some of them have well not especially Benedetta she seems to have this perfect life but obviously it's anything but from the materialistic point of view it certainly is 
anyway. Yeah, and I think you know, with her her father, who's largely absent, and um, we don't really know the nature of their relationship either. So perhaps you know, Ricardo in himself is a bit of a father substitute figure. Now it seems to be a lot about absent parents, because as you, as you said, Benedetta's father is he's away and he's about to leave for the states. Ricardo's jetting off to Geneva and has obviously not been there for Lila in the way that that she wants, probably at least when she was younger, before she developed this unhealthy obsession with her father yeah i don't i don't know what, how you feel about ricardo's character and we'll get into this with the end our discussion of the ending but um there's a few references throughout the film to evil and the snake is this biblical evil figure and we firstly hear it in the music when benedetta drives through the roman streets as the singer sings a real taste of evil in the world and then we hear benedetta tells ricardo he's a snake poisoned by love and yeah at the end of the film when sandra and benedetta band together um she tells him that in heaven on earth the snake is the devil um, so there's certainly this sense of evil, evil that's permeating throughout the world. And I think that's just thing of who is the evil person in the story? Are they all evil? It's not necessarily a clean cut villain in that respect, like it would be in a typical Jallo. This is more about relationships. And I, I guess you could look at it in different ways. Has Ricardo disregarded his daughter so much during her, possibly after her mother's death, that she's developed this unhealthy obsession with him? So has he, in some regard, sort of caused all this? We're just kind of questioning how complicit Ricardo is in what's happened. Because in the end, he does come across as fairly unfeeling. For all of this, you know, he's positioned throughout the film frequently as a victim. Or I know that the trio don't see him as a victim, but I think Benedetta starts to feel sympathy towards him and Sandro develops a sort of um, affinity with him based on yeah. his father's relationship, um, past relationship with Ricardo and the way in which Ricardo seems to be treating him almost like a son and with respect. And then at the end, Ricardo hits both Benedetta and Sandro and seems to be just completely dismissive of them both. So we do wonder if Ricardo's not as innocent as he's initially portrayed to be because he does just seem so unfeeling and maybe his daughter was right, maybe he perfectly manipulated everyone in that scenario. I reacted to that um, sort of confrontation or that admission of guilt when Benedetta and Sandro talks to Ricardo as well. And he the, the only result is that he ends up slapping the two of them. So that was slightly surprising because it didn't seem like it was in a place where he would necessarily do that. But he says that Lila must have come up with a plan as as a part of a fight for her ideals. And you can tell that he's not convinced by what, by what he's saying. He's trying to convince himself that that's the case. But I get the feeling that he knows what it's about and that that's what, what brings us to the ending. Yeah. In that scene where Benedetta and uh, Sandro decide to tell Ricardo the truth and admit that she's in fact very much alive and it was part of the scheme that got out of control. And we do see progression with their characters. I mean, I think Benedetta makes some comment about how she doesn't want to, to play these dirty games anymore and she doesn't want to achieve um, their aims through these dirty, underhanded tactics. So we see this this growth in their characters. But yeah, Ricardo, and if anything, regresses as a character. We see he's a lot more dogmatic and perhaps more like we would assume someone in his position would be. Yeah, he's obviously not reacting in the way that they thought he would either because when he thinks that um, Benedetta has accidentally died from the OD, Sandra advises him to take off as he normally would to his country house, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. Then he does a lot of soul searching while he's at the country house. Sandra comes across him as he's writing down his confession and they obviously didn't expect that to happen. Uh, it felt like that threw a little bit of a wrench in their plans. Maybe he would hand himself over to 
to the police and say that he was involved obviously not as satisfying for Lilla if he were to do that she wants to destroy him yeah it's almost like he takes away that control and power from her yeah by being the one to do it himself because I suppose he wants to win in the end doesn't he and perhaps that's he's aware of that fact he knows that what his daughter's like and he wants to kind of prove that her ways uh won't wash with him I suppose he does prove himself in the end to be that person that they thought he was despite you know Benedetta and Sandro believing that he'd progressed in some way or he was maybe sympathetic to their cause or not sympathetic to their I don't know if that's a fair thing to say but I think yeah they feel that he was like on side in some ways or he understood their plight and understood what it was like for them as young people and for some sort of friendship or relationship with him and then he just turns out to be kind of what they probably assume all older people to be and traitors to the to the youth and whatever else yeah because like you mentioned that especially with Sandro it feels like he and um, Ricardo certainly form a bond because Sandra offers to help him and those two really seem to get quite close to each other. Yeah, and I'd say Sandra actually is probably the most sympathetic character in the piece. Um, And I really want to know more about his backstory and his father, to be honest. I think that was something that I'd like to know more about, maybe see developed in some way. Yeah, I think that's one of the sort of minor criticisms about the film is that since it's so much about character, it would perhaps be helpful if, if they would have been sort of filled out a little bit more. Yeah, just a few, like, because it's a very dialogue heavy film. So it feels like there's space in the film to explore those characters a bit more. Because I think initially in the film, the first half, the motivations unfold really beautifully. And we learn things about the characters as the plot progresses. We start to second guess their motivations and how they're embroiled in this elaborate scheme. But that seems to go by the wayside a bit later on. I feel like, yeah, the second half of the film might have been a there might have been an opportunity there to develop Sandro or maybe to give Leela a bit more of a, I wouldn't say sympathetic quality, but I think sometimes she comes across as a bit overly harsh. Maybe there could have been something else added there to make things feel a bit more ambiguous and in regards to her character, make her ending feel a bit more sympathetic. Yeah. Um, depending on the ending, we'll get into that. You can view several people as perhaps the villain of the piece, but a lot of people would probably see Lilla as the villain just because of her harsh ways and she's not giving all that many sympathetic character traits really yeah I think it would have been better if she just had something there that might make it just a little bit more more ambiguity over her motivations and who she is as a person so I mean I guess before we talk about the rage within it within's ending anymore we should firstly state that there's two different endings that exist of the film yeah. um, the version that most listeners will probably be familiar with which is the version that I was familiar with um, is the international cut of the film which is a fan dubbed Spanish VHS release I think the one that goes about at the minute yeah it's the Spanish language version which is dubbed with within Italian soundtrack yeah from a public screening apparently oh right okay that's the story that's crazy um, and yeah. in that version the film ends with Leela and Richard on either side of the pane of glass of Richard's country home and they place their hands to the glass so they're perfectly mirroring one another seemingly finding I suppose happiness or comfort or something in the presence of one another um, before the film ends yeah so the Italian version um, the ending is much bleaker it follows the same ending as the international version with Leela running through the woods but when she arrives at the house Richard is nowhere to be seen and she breaks down all alone and the film ends with a, a shot ringing out yeah the international cut came at a time when bleak endings were seen as less palatable to an audience so the film's happy ending that appears to show a reconciliation between Leela and Richard was shot to give the film an uplifting ending that shows some sort of redemption for their characters and their relationship as you say the spanish version has a happier but also possibly more perverted ending 
Mm-hmm. Or it could be seen as possibly more perverted as as Lila's standing outside the villa and Richard comes up to the window and their, their hands meet on the glass sort of prison style and Ricardo proceeds to caress Lila's face through the window. It's happier on the surface but also a little bit more ambiguous in a way than the bleak Italian version. Yeah, there's this undercurrent in the International Cup which is almost unsettling and you feel like it's not necessary a natural reconciliation between father and daughter and it's quite open-ended and and like you said i read it the same way that there's something quite perverse going on yeah because if their hands would have just met on the glass that would have been fine as ricardo proceeds to caress her face through the window that brings it to a place where it feels a bit unsavory yeah and it seems to mirror you know sandro and bernadette's coming together so it's almost like all the couples switch around a bit and now they finally found each other this almost like true love pairing yeah, yeah. Again, again, rather. I didn't think of that, but that's yeah. And to complicate things, we have to mention as well that the Spanish version with a composite of the Italian audio, that version leaves the shot ringing out on the soundtrack, but the rest of the ending plays out like the Spanish version, which makes it slightly confusing for the first time viewer. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit uh, confusing. I think most people will have seen the international cut, though, won't they? Yeah. Which I think actually, I, I think I prefer that. Usually I like the bleaker ending, but I think in terms of what we were talking about and the ambiguity that exists in the film and with the characters, I prefer the international cut. Because I think it's the uh, Italian cut, it's almost like Lila gets her comeuppance and she really is the villain of the piece. Whereas I think, yeah, it's more open-ended with the international cut. But then again, like you say, it depends how you read it, because I presume that the reason they did that because they thought it was a happier ending, where we're yeah. taking the subtext over Would you like to go into production history? Yeah. The Rage Within was an Italian Yugoslavian co-production between the Italian Diano film, Leone film and Jadron film from Yugoslavia. Shooting started on April 28th, 1969 and the film was shot in Italy, apparently near Pisa, as well as in Zagreb, Yugoslavia, where interiors were shot at Jadron Studios over the course of somewhere around 10 to 12 weeks. The director of photography was a certain Vittorio Storaro, who would, of course, go on to shoot some of the best-looking films in the genre. Argentus, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, but Sony's The Fifth Chord and Leorma, as well as many films for Bernardo Bertolucci, The Conformist, The Spider Stratagem, 1900, and of course Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now. The Rage Within was one of the first films Dorora shot, and according to Rossetti, the first colour film he'd shot. While it's not as visually brilliant as his genre masterpieces for Bertone, he already seems like a seasoned pro and delivers a sumptuous-looking film. The editing was done by Alberto Galitti. We've mentioned him when we're discussing The Murder Clinic, and he would go on to edit several Jali in the coming years. The Man with Ice of Ice, Human Cobra, Amanda Crispino's The Dead or Alive, The Weapon, The Hour and The Motive, and Anima Persa. And that brings us on to production design. You must have been in the seventh heaven here. Yeah, no, it was good to do the production. I was just thinking there when you were talking about Vittorio Storero, I thought that was actually a really good um, assessment of his work on the film because I think the first time I saw it, I had no idea that he was involved. I don't even think it registered like when I when I saw credits. And yeah, it's certainly not his best work, but there's lots of really interesting bits and pieces there. And considering this is quite early on in his career, I think, you know, it's really decently shot. Yeah. So yeah, in the in the discussion of mid to late 1960s cinema, we often talk about the sense of frivolity and playfulness that frequently runs throughout the production design of the time, primarily due to the radicalized changes occurring throughout society, um, which was completely at odds with what had come before it. Benedetta's flat is a primary example of this. Um, I think you'd struggle to find an 
item of furniture that represented the radical cultural shift more than the blow-up armchair in Benedetta's flat. Mm-hmm. Um, I won't go into specific details of the furniture piece as I'm talking about elsewhere, actually, but it certainly demonstrates that move away from functional traditional pieces to something far quirkier, more playful, um, that breaks the design rules. The interior of Benedetta's open-planned flat is a late 60s wonderland in terms of its fashionable orange, yellow and green colour palette and use of mixed fabrics and textures such as the cream plush carpeting, perspex decorative hangings and use of jagged plants against artificial objects. But the space Benedetta inhabits is very different to the world she and her comrades profess to be part of. Benedetta lives this decadent lifestyle funded by her father, an eminent professor. She seems to typify everything that a woman like Leela would deem as wrong with society. Benedetta is a member of the ruling classes and her position as such allows her to live a life of leisure without the worries and stresses that befall others. Benedetta's home further serves to highlight the hypocrisy of her and her comrades and the disconnect of their own lives against what they purport to believe in. And like we said before, that's not to say privileged people can't partake in the betterment of society, but it's just um, you don't quite feel like their revolutionary politics are wholly genuine um, and that they are in fact quite isolated and out of touch. And as I said earlier about her home feeling a bit like a gilded cage in some ways um, outside of the rest of society. In Benedetta's flat, we see a black lacquered carousel horse, which her character sits on with her arms folded in a rather childlike manner, the horse feeling somewhat like a child's rocking horse. In this scene, it feels like there's a bit of a juxtaposition between Benedetta's role in Leela's scheme as a honey trap and her almost innocent, childlike demeanour. And we see these parallels made to Benedetta the child when she talks about her experience and with Richard as a child. That further serves to highlight her character's naivety and the generational difference between her and Richard. And if you've seen um, Pasquale Festa Campanile's visually masterful Check to the Queen, you'll have seen a carol soil horse just like that um, used in a similar manner, but I believe it's painted white or cream in that film. Yeah, I thought of that as yeah, well. Yeah, and it really adds that childlike um, fun to an interior and it just goes to show how yeah all these rules are being broken in the 60s that that you just lounge on a carousel horse as opposed yeah. to a conventional armchair. <laughs> um, outside of Benedetta's flat, the interiors featured throughout the film are fairly classical in nature, mature and proper and reflective of older design ethos, which matches the stuffy financial and governmental world Ricardo inhabits. Uh, the way in which his character moves between these worlds suggests that he's trying to hold on to his youth via his relationship with Benedetta. And we see quite a stark difference between Benedetta's modish wonderland and Richard's country home. And it also seems quite jarring to see Benedetta slumming it in an outbuilding and uh, near his home later on in the film. Just one other thing I wanted to mark up, um, remark upon about the interior design because there's not much to say about the rest outside of her modish flat but I really like um, the trio's, I don't know what you'd call it, maybe like a base, their little revolutionary hideout and we've got um, these wonderful figures, um, female figures armed with guns I'm in front of the oh, screen yeah, yeah. and that's like a really nice design touch. It seems to echo Lila and um, Benedetta as these uh, revolutionaries. At the film's costume design done by Gaia Romanini Rossetti, a very talented and prolific costume designer. This is certainly not her best work, um, but Benedetta's costumes are rather nice and suitably modish with patent knee-high boots and bright red flares, etc, etc. Of course, Sandro and Lila, being the revolutionary couple that they are, aren't really fashion plates, um, but Ricardo is always impeccably dressed and presented as this desirable older man rather than as a fatherly figure there's a swedish cobra phone in there as there well. there is there? yes there is one in yeah. that which she uses when she makes the phone call to ricardo which is always nice to see and obviously i have to bring it up it, it's, it's yeah it's, country. it's the law <laughs> it's the law that every time it's an ericsson isn't it then ericsson comes up then you have to comment yep <laughs> and i think there's some quite interesting music in this film that we've touched upon a bit in the podcast already but i'd really like to hear what you think about some of the on the nose <laughs> lyrics that feature through 
throughout the film in some of the pop songs. Yeah, yeah, like you say, out of all the films we talked about so far, the gore is the most disparate one, isn't there? There's like no signs of the bossa nova or jazz influences here. Is instead it's a more contemporary psychedelic score, which I suppose makes sense considering the the time during which the film takes place and these um, supposedly revolutionary youngsters and so much on the film hinges on the conflict between the youth and their parents that it, I guess the music needed a, a really youthful and contemporary feel. The score was written by British musicians Peter Chilton and Peter Al Smith and it was performed by a one-off band The Rage Within and like you say the, some of the lyrics are a bit on the nose. <laughs> it's quite interesting at the end of the film where it, the song that plays over the end credits which is played earlier in the film as well is She's a Loser. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say it's a score that I listen to regularly, but it's been released on CD by Quartet Records and it's available on Spotify as well if anybody wants to check it out for their dose of Psychedelica. Do you like it? To be honest, it's not my cup of tea just because I'm not really into that type of music anyway. I was just thinking about the lyrics of like looking back at my other notes. There's, I'm trying to find it here, but it's... um... Yes, yeah, in, in the music in the bar and it goes, be good girl, be good girl, be your father's child, plays in the background. So yeah, and there's like a few, like we said, the evil, the reference to evil in the start as well. And like you said, the, the ending. Um, so yeah, very much on the nose. Yeah. Oh, I didn't catch that in the in the bar. Shall I talk a little bit about the release of the film? Yeah, that'd be really good. In Eugenio Ecolani's uh, Darkening the Italian Screen, there's an interview with Rossetti. And in that, he mentioned that there was heated discussions regarding the title. Distributor Gifredo Lombarda Titanus thought the Murder at the Tennis Club title was poor, but Guerra wanted to stick with it. And Rossetti, who felt like he owed Guerra for producing his first film, agreed with him. Apparently, Lombarda felt slighted and decided not to distribute the film as widely as it was first agreed. It was granted a, an 18 certificate on December 4th 1969 and it opened later on in December but it failed to set the box office alight only making 226 million lira almost half of what Rossetti's debut made. This didn't stop Jerry Gross from attempting to make it a success in the States. A trade ad from Jerry Gross Cinemation Industries plays up the sensationalist angle between Lilla and her father with a tagline a strange relationship between a daughter and a father explores the unexplorable. It was released in the US in February 1971, a fact that almost certainly means that there's an English language dub around somewhere, but it has yet to surface, or at least I haven't come across it. The poor performance of the film left Rossetti at the hands of the producers, and his next project was the only one that he was offered. Un Cavalla Tutta Nuda, a decamerotic romp with Don Bacchi and Barbara Boucher did fairly well, at least in certain regions of Italy, making 600 million lira at the box office. Then My Dear Nephews, a Commedia Sexy all'Italiana, film that Rossetti considers his favourite film, was another decent performer, and he made another sexy comedy in 1976, Quel Movimento Che Mi Piace Tanto, starring Cinzia Monreale, a film that Rossetti disowned, but he also did okay business. In 1979, he directed Emmanuel and Joanna, the erotic film that he wrote and directed under the pseudonym Fred Gardner. He also directed film for TV and made his last film, Al Limite, Cho Non Glielo Dicho, in 1984. God, I must have slaughtered that last title. I'm so sorry. Do it better than I do. By all accounts, it seems like Rossetti was more interested in writing than he was in directing, but he's made some enjoyable films. Um, he passed away in Rome 
on June 11th, 2018, aged 87. Seems like good innings for an Italian director. I feel like everyone we speak about on this show ends up dying like 50 or 60, so... Yeah, they career. seem to die fairly young. Yeah. yeah. Um, and like you said before, probably not one of his favourite films. It probably doesn't ha- hold in that high regard. And you can kind of see why no. due to that um, information you've just given about its performance and some of the problems surrounding the production. Slightly sad, though, that it's so difficult to get a hold of, that you can't get the film through legal means, not even in Italy, not even on VHS. It just... It always makes me a little bit sad when films aren't released and aren't given an, a chance to find a new audience. But hopefully somebody will pick this up someday. Yeah, you feel like a film like this is almost destined to be lost in time. But um, I do have to say, when I see lists of the Jolly that people would most like to see on Blu-ray, even now with all the releases we've had, I really ever, I don't think I've ever seen anyone mention this title as a film they'd like no. to see. And that's understandable. I mean, to be honest, for me, it's as much as I want to preserve um, the lesser known Jolly, it's probably not near the top of my list no for those who want who want to see it on disc it's more a case of wanting to see Storaro's or early work preserved yeah. and in a good good looking edition well, in some ways i suppose that benefits the film because of Storaro's involvement and that might make someone more inclined to pick it up yeah just, sorry just for a moment there i was just thinking it's, it's just such an odd one as well because i think with the, the the title i know obviously we're calling it the rage within but the crime or murder at the tennis club whatever you want to refer to it as i think it gives people maybe unrealistic expectations about what the film's going to involve so do you want to deliver the final thoughts the rage within is an interesting example of a late 1960s italian thriller that seeks to weave the unrest of the student protest of the 1968 with psychoanalytical elements of late 1960s jolly whilst it's perhaps not as dynamic as some of its late 60s counterparts. It's a competently written piece that excels at constructing characters with questionable motivations and backgrounds that slowly reveal themselves throughout the course of the film. There's an attempt here at some psychological exploration with the presentation of the Electra Oedipus complex, reflected through the characters of Leela and Ricardo, that adds a sense of perverseness despite the film's chasteness that goes beyond the usual depiction of extramarital affairs and sexually liberated characters that typically populate the shadow. Whilst it won't be remembered as one of the better offerings of an Italian thriller from the period, the rage within still presents some engaging intelligent ideas even if it doesn't offer the grandiosity and elaborate twists and turns typically associated with the shadow. We're delighted to share the news that Fragment of Fear's good friend Bill Ackerman has returned to his excellent supporting characters podcast after a year absence. It's a fantastic show that seeks to highlight the involvement of writers, podcasters, programmers and preservationists and their creative endeavours around film culture. Bill is a fantastic interviewer with such great insight, always getting the best out of his always fascinating subjects. In Supporting Characters' characters latest episode, Bill speaks to film historian, preservationist and filmmaker Evan Purchill about his work. Yeah, and there are plenty of other interesting episodes there as well. One with a certain Rachel Nisbet, for example. Yes, I know, I feel a little embarrassed (laughs) because Bill gets such excellent guests on. You know, it's like Bill Lustig and things, and then there's like me. (laughs) But yeah, there's some really, really interesting episodes was there and I think when I recorded with Bill we talked for like three or four hours not that that all made it to the final edit but yeah he gets he really gets the best out of the subjects which is a real talent I would say wouldn't you yeah he's he's a brilliant interviewer yeah we 
highly recommend checking that podcast out if you're not familiar with it already and you can find it on all the usual platforms um, under supporting characters yeah this month we've got a little competition for our listeners as well we're giving away uh, an original Locandina for the rage within or as it's titled in Italian Delitto al Circolo del Tennis all you have to do to be in with a chance to be the lucky winner of this 1969 Locandina is to tweet or post your favourite Ennio Morricone composition and tag us with Fragments Pod and we'll enter you in the draw and as always the competition is open to listeners worldwide and for those of you who pledge to us via Patreon we can reveal that our next Patreon episode is on our favourite Jago couples in the, throughout the genre as always you can find us on social media Facebook at Fragments Pod same on Instagram or you can reach us on Twitter Rachel underscore Nesbeth or Senior Ward or you can send us an email at fragmentspod at gmail.com the music you can hear playing is by Osox. Resource Learning's theme for Seven Bloodstained Orchids. You can find their music at castleosox.com. That's about all for this episode, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's us for tonight's episode. Um, enjoyed talking about another lesser known Shally. Uh, I mean, even in the remit of our podcast, we're getting a bit more obscure, aren't we? So between this and Cross Current. Certainly are. It's been a pleasure as always, Rachel, and hope you've enjoyed listening. Thank you. Bye. Bye.